ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon. It is Friday, March 20th, 2015, and it is a joyful day on the Executive Girlfriends Group. The book that we are talking about today is Joy Incorporated, How We Built a Workplace People Love. And our guest today is Richard Sheridan. He's the co-founder and CEO of Menlo Innovations. Richard, welcome. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Well, I have just had the most incredible morning of my life. I've been working on a on a startup for, uh, well, it's one of these overnight successes that's taken seven years, uh-huh. and uh, just had a, an amazing meeting this morning uh, with a company that we're going to be doing some business with that is going to push us uh, to the next level. So I am starting this on an absolute high, and this is definitely my joy day. So this is a perfect topic for today. So Richard, tell us first a little bit about you. And I mean, did you wake up as a uh, young man saying, you know, I want to, you know, bring joy into this world, or has this been an evolution for you? I think a little bit of both. Um, I fell in love with this profession when I was just a little kid, this uh, profession of designing and writing software. I had the great fortune that the high school I attended in 1971 implemented a computer science curriculum and taught kids how to program computers. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are amazed that there were even computers back in 1971, and let alone that they were teaching how to program them in high school. (laughs) But I can tell you in those first few weeks of high school and in that class, my heart was captivated, and I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life. My kids are astounded by that. They're like, seriously, Dad, you decided at 13 years old what you're going to do the rest of your life, and I'm 57 now, 44 years in, I think I've chosen. And so there was clearly a, a delight in you know, satisfying what perhaps is my inner builder, my inner engineer. But ultimately, when I really reflect back in my youth, what, what I loved more than anything was to be able to do something with my hands that delighted someone else, mm. you know, build something that delighted someone else. And, and I, as I really reflect on my own personal convictions, I realize that's where the joy word comes from for me. Is it isn't my own joy of just loving the work, which I do. It's the joy of creating something that delights others. And I believe that is the heart of a builder, the heart of an engineer, is you want to create something lasting. And uh, so that was the, that was kind of the inspirational fire behind everything you read about. And, you know, I chased that profession. Uh, I took, got a couple of degrees in computer science, computer engineering from Michigan here in Ann Arbor. And, uh, but very quickly uh, hit what I call my personal trough of disillusionment, where nothing was going right. We weren't satisfying the world with the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds. We were, we were missing the mark regularly. We were living in chaos as a team. We were failing to deliver results we think could have been meaningful and impactful. And, and I began to wonder if maybe I wasn't cut out for this. Maybe this wasn't the profession I thought it was going to be. And 
in the midst of that, when I was literally thinking about escaping the profession altogether, I decided to start reading books. And the books began to draw a picture for me that gave me a sense that there was a better way of doing things than was customer. And I was going to have to figure it out myself. And I just went on a mission. And so there was that kind of long evolution about a over about a 15-year period as I sought a better way of doing things than, than my industry typically does. So, so tell me how you made this transition from, you know, developing software and, and, you know, tell me a little bit about what Menlo Innovations does today. Yeah. So the... The trough of disillusionment days for me uh, spanned a time from when I was a programmer to the time I was a vice president. So I moved up the career ladder. I, I can tell you that uh, from the world's view, my career looked beautiful. Uh, you know, it looked perfect. It was a straight line climb from you know 1982 programmer to 1997 vice president. But that whole time, I was getting more and more despondent about my career. And so those books led me to start thinking about different ways of organizing things. Books like Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, on the art and practice of learning organizations, Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence. These books were drawing a picture for me. I didn't know how I was going to get to that picture, but I was determined to figure it out. Around about 1999, as a vice president of this tired old public company in Ann Arbor, I read a book by a guy named Kent Beck on something called extreme programming, and I saw a Nightline episode called The Deep Dive on an industrial design firm out in California called IDEO. And in that moment, all the preparation I had done at that time, I realized I knew where I was going, and I dramatically changed the team I was leading as a vice president. I pulled everybody out of their offices and cubes. I put them out in a big open room. Uh, I began pairing people to to a computer. I began switching the pairs every couple of weeks. And the human energy that resulted from that and the, the productivity and the quality and the results just spoke for themselves. And I got a chance to run that experiment for two years until the NASDAQ burst, the Internet bubble burst, and uh, there was a depression in my industry, the IT industry. Right. Uh, and... In that moment, I lost my job, I lost my title, I lost my wages, I lost my stock options. Everything that the world typically recognizes success was taken away from me except for one important thing, what I had learned in those two years. And I went to my then co-founders and said, guys, we can do this again. We have cracked a, a, a code here around human energy and human behavior and teamwork and organizational design. Let's go build a company with what we learned in those two years. And that's how Menlo came to be. So when people come to Menlo, they kind of look at me and they're like, so how did you think of this? Did it start this way? And well, in fact, it did start. The way it looks today is how it started in the beginning. But the thinking part of it was about a 15-year journey through utter pain in my career. Mm, wow. What a story. Well, you know, I, I we were talking just before the show started. I just finished uh, writing a book, and I, it was something I had wanted to do for a long time that is an allegorical novel uh, about a company who, you know, was going through many of those same uh, things that you described in your own 
life and, you know, people were looking at going to work and, and not experiencing joy and, and not just because of the physical environment and cubicles. Um, but it was so funny that I had just finished the manuscript and where joy ended up being, the words coming out of the CEO's mouth of, you know, what he really desired in his life. So I added at the end of the book that they went public and, and they created this amazing work environment. And the quote that I used uh, from you uh, in my book is, uh, you know, that joy can actually be a competitive advantage. And they learned that cubicles kill. They kill morale, communication, productivity, creativity, teamwork, camaraderie, and energy, spirit, and results. And their new office environment was more like a bunch of cozy living rooms. And, and so... I took that from your book because it was the kind of environment that I'd like in my own company, you know, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. So as as I move into, you know, building out this next phase of, of where my company is going, um, you know, this is way more than an interview uh, to me. This is, I think, uh, a transformative moment in my own company's life, and I hope also in the lives of the folks who are listening to this. So let's dive into the book a little bit. But before we do that, Tell me what took this from uh, the experiment that you described in, in the company, you know, before you lost that job, doing your own company where you set up this amazing environment, and then writing a book about it. What, what was the catalyst behind the book? So we have opened our doors from the very beginning of Menlo to the world to come see how all this works. And... People come now by the thousands every year. We had over 3,200 people come from around the world to visit us. They stay anywhere from two hours to five days. In fact, we've got a group of 25 people who have been here for five days studying us, learning from us, and so on. And so we're 14 years old now, and so we're in the tens of thousands of people who have come through here. And you can imagine I get invited to speak at conferences and so on. Right. And quite frankly, the world started to demand we write a book about what was going on in this room. I had a, an, another author in a conference, and she wrote me afterwards, and she said, Rich, you have to write a book about this. And I said, well, I've been thinking about writing a book. She goes, oh, no, you're done thinking. You you have to write a book. And 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 that ultimately, she's a very irresistible force uh, and she made sure that I all the ducks lined up that I would go write a book. And I knew I would write a book someday about this. I actually love the process of writing. And so, and of course, when you start writing about something you love, it's it's not a labor. It's, oh, it's hard absolutely. work, but it's not a labor. So that's how the so, book came to be. Very, very cool. Well, I, I will tell you that... Um, you know, from the minute I saw it, I knew that there was something special here. And again, uh, I love transforming companies, and I've spent the last uh, 19 years as a strategic consultant and, you know, have gone kind of through the gamut of good to great and, all you know, all the things that people write books about. And one of the things I love about having this radio show is, you know, what you described about going off and reading, I get to do that every Friday mm-hmm. at noon, right? I get to have kind of the the bird's eye view into the minds of, of the authors, which is really a 
fascinating place uh, for me to be. And when, when I send you the manuscript for what I've just written, the book actually is about people who listen to my radio show. Uh, but it's, it's a, a fictional uh, book. Um, but anyway, let's dive into your book. Um, so y- you start out talking about why joy. And you know, I think you just really took us through that snapshot of, of why is this so important. Um, and, and you gave us a little bit of what you talk about in Chapter 1 of My Journey to Joy. Um, let's talk about um, Chapter 2, which begins talking about space and noise and the impact of that on productivity and, and culture and uh, everything that we have to deal with, whether you're a young business uh, or a mature business. Yeah, when you come to Menlo, when you come and visit, and I hope you can do that. Oh, I, you, it is on my list now of things to do. <laughs> and you walk in the front door, you are confronted with something. And I, I use that word very uh, uh, dramatically because uh, there is often, and I love this when I do it, sometimes I'll walk in with people, and I hear it every time. They open the door, and the first word out of their mouth is, And we're in the basement of a parking structure. <laughs> we get wild. Okay. So, you know, and, uh, and what, are they, what are they seeing? What are they feeling? Well, the first thing they're going to get hit with is the human energy of the space. It's a noisy, vibrant environment, but it's not the noise of chit-chat. It's the noise of productive work. And then they look out and they see, quite frankly, one of those vilified open office environments that you read articles about. Right, you know, Fast Company magazine recently said our kind of workspace with no walls, offices, cubes, or doors is an idea born in the mind of Satan in the deepest caverns of hell. <laughs> and there's psychologists, particularly for software companies, who say you cannot use this. It doesn't work. It's not more productive. It steals away the attention of the introverts. And I can tell you, when all those articles come out, people send them to me, and they say, Rich. Why does this work for Menlo and why does it seemingly work anywhere else, particularly in your industry? And I say, well, it's very simple. We didn't build an open and collaborative workspace. We built an open and collaborative culture, and we fit our workspace to our culture. And that's, quite frankly, a big idea. Most organizations who are trying to go to open office plans take a bunch of people who have known, like, or trust each other, jam them out in a big open room and say, now you're all going to get along, right? <laughs> and it just doesn't work. It's not how right. humans are wired. So there's a cultural expectation here of collaboration, of working together, of being teams. And the human energy that results from the way we organize what goes on in the room, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the midst of this conversation, you can't help but get caught up in it. And so people walk in the door and their day is an upward spiral of morale rather than a downward spiral of uh, demoralization and loneliness, which is typical of many uh, many companies, not just tech firms. Where people well, are and I, I, here, here's the, the interesting thing, and, and this is what's going on in, in my world, and, and I think you will find this with uh, early-stage entrepreneurial ventures, is the entrepreneurs have been alone for a long time. And, you know, you talked about loneliness even in a, a crowded room. 
you know, I'm coming from, I want to establish an office environment because I have, you know, lived this isolated world where I'm working with remote teams and, you know, trying to get things done, but I haven't had everybody in one room. So I'm actually really anxious uh, in a good way uh, for that space and that noise. And, And Chapter 3 dives into something I'm also incredibly passionate about, and that is the freedom to learn. And, you know, I love bringing people together who have intellectual curiosity and can get out of their own way um, and get out of their own industry's way, uh, which is often the case, that the industry is what keeps them constrained. So talk to me a little bit about the freedom to learn. You can't survive in my industry. I don't believe you can survive in any industry these days without having learning built into the organization. You know, uh, in some ways, my industry is responsible uh, for creating the need for learning uh, within itself as well as within other industries because we are often at the vanguard of changing things. And, you know, if I was still applying what I learned in school, I'd be programming in Fortran uh, rather than, (laughs) you know, I don't program anymore, but... um, well, we're the exact same age, and I remember one of my first jobs uh, of doing card punching at Miller Brewing Company go. in the manpower planning group. So. Yeah, exactly. So the fact of the matter is, we, we, in order to survive, we must learn. And, and, right. um, in fact, I have a quote in the conference room I'm sitting in from Darwin that says, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. Yes. And the fact of the matter is that in order to change, we have to learn. We naturally resist change as humans, but when we start learning the reasons behind the change. So now, how does this work for a memo? Where do we build this into the system? Well, clearly there are books everywhere. You know, we were, I'm an avid reader, and I expect the team to be keeping themselves up to date as much as possible with the right. books we have littered about. But book learning is just a small fraction of what we do here. It's the way we work that promotes the learning. We put two people together at a single computer. These pairs work together on the same task at the same time. We assign the pairs and we switch them every five working days. So we're connecting our team members intellectually, emotionally. We're connecting them physically at a single computer. They have to work together. And right in there, just in that, in that little construct that I just described, mm. all the learning occurs. Because if you and I are working together for the first time, we get to know one another. We start exchanging ideas. We work on a problem together. We solve it together. And then we break apart five days later. And now maybe I'm continuing uh, the work that you and I worked on. Now I have to teach the next person, where did we get to? Well, in that teaching, I learn it more myself. And, of course, the person who's learning is asking me all kinds of questions. And the questions are so probing that suddenly I realize, oh, when you and I worked together, we actually didn't think it through enough because the questions I'm getting now show some holes in this. And, of course, you're sitting just a few feet from me because we work in this big open room. And all of a sudden, you kind of chime in. You're like, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. And this is how we built a learning organization like Peter Singh described in the fifth discipline. 
Very cool. So you talk next about conversations, rituals, and artifacts. I think we're all familiar with what, what conversations and rituals are, but put it in context for us and, and tell us what you mean by artifacts. Yeah, so artifacts for us are the things that drive all of our structured processes here. And so one of the simplest ones and most powerful is a little five and a half inch by eight and a half inch index card. That drives everything we do here. That's what I call a keystone habit now. One of my favorite recent books is The Power of Habit by Charles Dewey. And in that he in that book he describes how if we can harness our our habitual nature, which we as humans are habitual, it's how we survive most of our days. If we can harness those, we can turn them into really good things. Uh, and so for us, the central artifact of Menlo is a, is a handwritten five-and-a-half-inch by eight-and-a-half-inch index card. No work can get done in the Menlo software factory unless and until it's handwritten down on one of those cards. Then we estimate it, we fold the card to the size of the estimate so we can see relative sizes between these cards, and then we plan them against the capacity of the team, the time, the people, the budget that we're working under, so that in fact by creating these simple, tangible artifacts, and humans are very good with you know, visible, tangible artifacts. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of a weird software company. A lot of people look at us and they're like, my gosh, you're like the Amish of software development because you, <laughs> you use paper for everything. And, and our point is we didn't choose paper because it was anti-technology. We chose paper because we believe it works better for humans. Right. Humans are very visual, tactile creatures, so we, we take advantage of that with our artifacts. And so these, these little paper-based artifacts gather the, the work items that we have to do. They, they inform all of the planning we do here, which makes planning completely unambiguous, and then it defines the actual work plans for each pair of people in the week because we take a version of those artifacts, a photocopy, and we pin it to the wall for all to see, including the people who the work is assigned to so that they know exactly what's expected of them. And by driving out the ambiguity and the uncertainty of what is it that I'm supposed to be working on today, you create an incredible freedom inside the system because now you're free to pursue the work that you love without oh, worrying about working on the right thing. It is so dead simple. Yes, but simple is never easy. That's the biggest problem with right. simple. <laughs> Everybody exactly. thinks, no, it should be really complicated. It should be software. It should be all this stuff. And my answer is it doesn't have to be. Take a look at this. Wow. So this begs the question of of getting the right people in place. And, and uh, not not surprisingly, Chapter 5 is about interviewing hiring and onboarding, and I'm suspecting that uh, all three of those are equally important in your culture. If a company wants to be intentional about its culture, which I believe it should be, but most companies actually aren't. They, they just sort of get the culture they get. They get the default culture. Who did we hire? What behaviors do we tolerate? What attitudes walked in our door today? That's our culture. Sometimes those cultures work really well for a while, and then they break down, and nobody knows why, because they're kind of random. But if you really want to be intentional about your culture, which obviously we are, you have to look at how do you, 
how do you interview? How do you recruit even? And then how do you interview? And how do you make a hiring decision? And how do you onboard people? And how do you give them feedback along the, the way? And so we reinvented that whole process here. We, we stepped away from the standard kind of interview I used to run in my old managerial life, which I call two people lying to each other for a couple of hours across the table. <laughs> And, you know, we, we replaced it with an experiential interview that doesn't ask any questions of the candidate. Imagine that. An interview without questions. We just have you work. You come in. We bring you in in mass. We pair you during the interview because we're, we're doing that because it simulates our work environment. Right. We're pairing you with another candidate, and we're letting you know that what we're looking for first, long before we're looking at skills or qualifications or degrees or anything is, are you a good kindergartner? Do you play well with others? Do you care? <laughs> well, and you're right. That is something that people do not test out. And then, you know, they're, they've got all of these people coming in who want to be the superstar, and then the first thing that does is set up conflict. Yeah, you know, we my industry is famous for hiring for very specific skill sets. You know, are you the Oracle 9.1.1.3 Service Pack 2 expert? And if you say, well, I'm I've only familiarized myself with Oracle 9.1.1.3 Service Pack 1, we're like, oh, well, you got to hit the ground running, you know, as if you can't learn another thing in your life. And then we we maybe look at your culture fit later, but we just assume you'll assimilate into the Borg eventually, but that's not how it works. You know, if you create an intentional culture, you also have to recognize that while a culture can be very strong, it can also be killed very quickly by a few drops of poison in your ecosystem. Mm. And so we have to guard against that. So the next chapter is about the power of observation. So who's observing who? Yeah. Well, this goes to the heart of joy for us. So we define joy. People always think it's some ethereal, esoteric concept. But no, for us, joy has a very explicit definition. What we want more than anything else is that the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds that goes on in this room gets out into the world actually gets delivered and delights the people for whom it's intended. And my industry has made a, a profession out of calling the people we serve stupid. We call them stupid users. You've probably heard that term. We write dummies yes. books for them. Uh, we get people who use our work to self-efface and say, oh, you know me, I'm just a stupid user. And the answer we have is no. It's not stupid user. It's stupid design. If you can't figure out what we did, it's our fault, not yours. Right. And so in order to get past that, we had to turn to an entirely different approach to figuring out how the software should work for the people we're trying to serve because that's our joyful intention. We want somebody later to come back and say, I love this software. In order to do that, we invented a whole new practice. We gave it a special name. We call it high-tech anthropology. We have people on our team who are high-tech anthropologists. Their job, go out into the world, study the people we're trying to serve, and study them in their native environment. Learn their vocabulary, their workflow, their habits. Learn their goals as human beings. Empathize. 
with compassion and understand that they have a job to do and their job typically is not, I get to go to work and use my computer all day. The computer is a tool. If our tool gets in the way, it frustrates people. If it blends right into your workflow, then it enhances your human productivity. That's the job of our high-tech anthropologists. They don't do it mm. through interviews. They don't do it through surveys or interrogations. We do it with discovery and observation of the users we're serving in their native environment out in the world, honoring their life. I love it. I absolutely love it. So the next thing you talk about, uh, and anytime you have human beings, uh, you're going to have fear, and, and in particular, the fear of change. So the next chapter is about fighting fear and embracing change. Yeah, I think my job as a leader and I had to learn this. This is a this is a journey for me because probably like most managers, I learned how to mimic the first manager that I popped out of my little eggshell and saw when I was starting. <laughs> and uh, you know, like the little duckling, right? And uh, and I can tell you, for most of my career, I was managed with fear. Sometimes it was simple things. Boss coming around going, "Hey, Rich, how's it going? What you working on? Are you almost done? Are you coming in this weekend?" And, you know, all those kind of questions create a fear response, yeah. right? You can, I bet your listeners right now, you know, they start thinking about it and they're like, oh, my blood pressure just went up. <laughs> um, and what does fear do? What is, and, and I'm talking, look, there's some things we should be afraid of in life and in business, right? A competitor, an economic force, uh, anything. There's some healthy fears out there that actually keep us alive. What I'm talking about is not managing people with manufactured fear, that, I, that somehow if I, if I scare you enough, I will motivate you. Because, in fact, what fear does, we know this, and you can measure it, it drops adrenaline and cortisol in your bloodstream. It channels oxygen away from the most interesting part of your brain to your muscles, you know, you get into fight or flight mode, and now the prefrontal cortex is shut down. You are no longer in the mode of being creative, inventive, imaginative, and innovative. And, of course, in a fear-based environment, there's no trust. Right. But if as a leader, if I, can, if I can systematically create a system and an attitude that says let's pump fear out of the room, like an HVAC system, you know, pump the cold air out, pump the fear out, filter out the ambiguity, warm the air to a nice safe temperature and pump safety back into the room, if people begin to feel safe, and I distinguish in the book between the environments where people feel safe, which are rare, and the environments where everybody's simply trying to be safe, which is common. Right. right? Be safe is look over your shoulder, don't raise your hand, don't, don't right. uh, criticize in a meeting, that sort of thing. But if we feel safe, we begin to trust one another. We can actually enter into productive conflict rather than divisive conflict. We begin to experience true teamwork. And then suddenly you get the thing that every company on the planet is yearning for, creativity, imagination, invention, uh, innovation. And uh, that's when you, know, you start to feel that human energy. Now, you know, this requires change. And I can tell you when I speak to groups and they come in on tours or I go to companies, I, I play a little uh, uh, skit with the crowd. I stand in front of them and I look at them and I say, I can see your thought bubbles, every one of you. 
every one of you is saying, you go, Rich, you tell those people. They need to change. And then I point to them. I say, no, no, the first person who needs to change is you. You need to change. I needed to change. I had to become a different kind of leader for all this to work. Right. I had to learn to quiet that part of my psyche that thought that using fear motivates. And it doesn't. Right. And so and one of the ways we instill this in our culture is what's the most common phrase you will hear around men when it happens every day. Let's run the experiment. Let's try something before we decide ahead of time that it won't work. Mm. You, uh, music, music to my ears. And, and what you've just talked about is what Chapter 8 is all about, and that is how do you grow leaders and not bosses? And, you know, one has control and, and one people choose to follow, right? right. And, and uh, I, I think your analogy of, you know, we kind of pop out of the shell and the first boss that we see is who we emulate. And I worked at, at American Airlines in their computer division for 10 years. And uh, American Airlines was run uh, at the time, uh, AMR Corporation was run by Bob Crandall, who was just notoriously brutal in staff meetings. Um, and he produced a whole bunch of little leaders just like him. And he has been gone from that company, I would venture to guess, at least 25 years. And uh, the vestiges of that style are still rampant. Uh, in, in that company, and it's it's very very sad to hear. And I, I thought by this time it would have been gone, but uh, you know this has a very very strong uh, hold on on corporate America definitely today. Well, culture is very strong, positive or negative, and will last a long time. So uh, they, they, you know, the, the the organization apparently is perfectly designed to support the culture they chose to create. Right. Right. So the next chapter talks about ending chaos and eliminating ambiguity, and I love how you tied um, ambiguity uh, to joy and and that when you can remove um, the ambiguous nature of not knowing what you're supposed to be doing, not knowing what the client expects, not knowing what your boss expects, um, that that does produce fear and uncertainty. And and, uh, so... How do you end that chaos? You talked about your artifacts being one of the ways that you do it. Can you give us another example? So if you think about um, (laughs) the typical kind of chaotic organization, it's often a place where you work long days. Uh, You kind of come in in the morning. You don't know what to expect. It's a little bit off to the races. The minute you walk in, the phone's ringing. Emails are arriving. Um, it's adrenaline-filled because it often feels like firefighting, right? They're right. just popping up everything that comes. But when you get home at the end of that very long day, maybe you missed dinner that night, and your significant other looks you in the eye and goes, wow, honey, you look really tired. Did you get a lot done today? And suddenly you realize, oh, my gosh, I got nothing done today. I got a lot of stuff started. I dealt with a lot of things, but I got absolutely nothing done usually that leads to a negative event somewhere in your life or in your business. Uh, And typically when those big negative business events occur, the organization has a response, and it looks like a procedure manual. You start putting together documents and stage dates and committees, and you implement a project management office, and now you've got a police force just policing the process, not even worrying about the work yet. And so you go from chaos to full-blown bureaucracy. 
you go from never getting anything done to, quite frankly, never getting anything started. Yes. And, of course, things still got to work through somehow, so then shadow groups begin to form that learn to work around the bureaucracy rather than with it. And now you're living in the worst version. You're living in chaos and bureaucracy, right? And the thing I talk about is that what we crave as humans, and we know this from when we were kids, is we crave predictable structure. You know, it, you think about us when we were young and we got up in the morning and our mothers had, you know, breakfast ready for us and maybe had our clothes laid out and we went off to school at the right time and we had a little brown bag in our hand and we got to the school and we knew what room we were supposed to go in and we sat down and in those safe kind of feeling environments, we were open to learning and getting some work done. And so what I talk about is the difference between chaos, bureaucracy, and right, the antidote to both of those is structure, simple, repeatable, measurable, visible structure based on human relationships. And in our world, that structure is very clear. It's like a skeletal system that keeps everything working. Uh, it's simple. It's, you know, it's driven by these handwritten index cards. It's repeatable. We run it on a five-day cycle every week. You could set your clock by some parts of our structure here. And people are kind of confounded by that at first because they're like, well, that doesn't seem creative, right? You're so regimented. In the <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, understand that in that simple, repeatable, measurable, visible, predictable structure, the freedom can now thrive because there are people bumping around saying, well, what are we supposed to be doing? What are we working on next? I often joke with people who come here on a tour when I show them how we do planning. It's a very simple system for doing planning. I have a few pictures of it in the book. And I, I say to them, I say, so how many of you have meetings where you work? Because we hate meetings. <laughs> right. uh, we think they're mind-numbing, spirit-sucking, energy-draining devices of management. Um, and, and I say, if you're at those meetings and somebody says, uh, so we're all on the same page now, right? I mean, you've probably heard that at meetings. And, <laughs> and I encourage the people who are in the tour groups, I say, when you hear a boss say that or a leader of a meeting say that, Raise your hand and say, okay, that's fine. We're on the same page. Well, which page are we talking about? Are we talking about the flip chart, the whiteboard, the notebook, the email that comes out after me? I'm fine being on the same page. I just don't know which page you're talking about. Right, right. Here, the way we plan, it's, it's physically a page. And so when we say we're on the same page, we're physically on the same page. On the same page. And then I ask them, if you want to be really annoying at this meeting, say, what did we decide not to do? Because you don't get anything done unless you're also deciding what not to do. Exactly, exactly. Well, one of the things I suggest in in my book is uh, actually locking all of the conference rooms for a day and just watch what happens. (laughs) Uh, It's diabolical, but uh, it uh, it is actually true uh, because you're right. I mean, meetings just consume so much of the time that there is no time to do any work. And, you know, I love the discussion. In fact, you know, again, your book is laid out so beautifully. Uh, The next chapter is about that rigor and discipline and quality. And, you know, rigor is a word that we don't use every day in, in the English language, but we should. Um, because you're right, that, that structure um, does provide the freedom to be creative. It's counterintuitive, but it does. 
You know, I think the epitaph I used to that chapter, if I'm remembering right, is Deming's quote that says, all anyone asks for is a chance to work with pride. Mm-hmm. That's what we want from work. We we want to know at the end of a day, a week, or even a career, that we gave it our best shot, that we had a chance to deliver something to the world that worked, that that was solid, that was delightful, yes. that made a contribution to mankind. That's what we want from work. We want to work on something that's bigger than ourselves, and I don't think you can get there without rigor and discipline. Mm-hmm. Well, and quality and metrics and, and uh, you know, being being able to actually see that progress. And I, I can't wait to see the visual, uh, you know, behind how you do these things because uh, I'm a very visual person. And I, I think it, it kind of happens at our age. Our brains get so full of so many things that, that words tend to lose their meaning. And so when you talked about the artifacts and how, the visual, like the size of the paper, actually is what makes the impression of how much can we actually do. Uh, and I just love that. So, uh, Most so people would um, replace our simple little index card with, in, with, a, with a report. <laughs> right. right. And nobody reads the report, not even the person who wrote it. By, exactly. by keeping it to a small artifact, it's like that old adage in life, I wasn't going to write you a, I was, I was going to write you a short letter, but I didn't have time, so I wrote exactly. you a long one. Yes, I say that frequently. So Chapter 11 um, talks about sustainability and flexibility. And, you know, I talk a lot about business sustainability, not not necessarily the you know the green side of sustainability and although I know that those things are important but actually having a business that has a future um and being able to be flexible when things don't go precisely as you think they're going to be so um give us some insight about sustainability and flexibility well as you said there is so much talk these days about sustainability ecosystems uh the climate energy sources um species. There's all kinds of talk about sustainability. And I I don't think any of us should mind any of those conversations, but let's add one to the mix. How about sustaining the people we work with Mm -hmm. and who work for us? We, in some ways, if you look at some of the methodologies that are out there, take lean, for example, there's some aspects or some, maybe some implementations would be a better way to put it because I've seen some incredibly thoughtful implementations of lean as well. But in some instantiations of lean, you see that they've learned to treat their machines better than they've learned to treat their humans. Mm-hmm. And I just refuse to accept that. It is time for us to enter into a new conversation about what it takes to sustain the people who work for us because, quite frankly, and we all know it, if we burn our team out, they will keep coming to work the next day. They just won't bring their brains with them. And now you <laughs> exactly. wonder why the statistics are 70% of disengaged workforces and all that sort of thing. Right. And it's a, it's a simple metric here at Memo. I mean, it's a crazy one, actually. I, I believe we own a statistic that no other company in the history of our industry can own. Now, how's that for a piece of hyperbole? But I've told this to you know, the tens of thousands of people who've come here now over all the years we've been in business, and and nobody's ever challenged me on it. We work 40 hours of work a week. We never work weekends. We don't deny or delay vacation requests. 
when you go home at night, you, there are no options to work from home. You can't dial in and continue working after you leave. So when your hand hits the door, you're done. And when you go on vacation, you're forbidden from checking email. And so it's truly a vacation. We're not sending you out the door with a laptop and a cell phone, special cell phones. We need to get in touch with you just in case. My but husband no. would love you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to, uh, full disclosure here, I have not subscribed to that personally until this last vacation when I told the team, okay, i got to live up to the same standard I'm holding you to. Yes. And that is, and the team has been chasing me on this because they're like, Rich, we know you don't do this. And, and I let myself off the hook, and I said, well, I'm not doing the project work that goes to our clients, so I'm not, and they didn't, <laughs> and they chased ah, me Ah, but see, then you me. had to write Chapter 13, which is about accountability. Absolutely. And, the, <laughs> and, and I skipped the, over scalability, which I don't want to skip, yep. so, sure. so uh, hold that thought, because I do want to yep. come back to that. Um, so once you've got all of this structure in place, and, and again, it. I'm, I'm sure our listeners' minds are completely blown by now um, because it, you know, joy and all of these things you've just talked about just don't feel like they fit. But once you've got it in place, the next chapter is about scalability. And when we look at scaling our businesses and what it takes to take on another client or another product development effort or, you know, whatever your and is, um, there are always barriers to scalability. So what does scalability mean to you? And in the context, does joy scale right along with it? Well, if you don't have a system that scales, you don't have a system. And interestingly, I actually uh, intrigue the reader, I think, with a question, and that is, does your uh, system scale up as easily as it scales down? Because quite frankly, scaling up is easier than scaling down. Mm, And that's an interesting thought process for people because they're surprised by it until I finally point out, and again, I'm going to look at my industry, if you have, you know, our typical sort of team in the programming land, not at Menlo, but everywhere else in the world, is you have all these towers of knowledge experts on what you do, right? There's the database expert, there's the front-end expert, there's the designer, there's the back-end guy, you know. Um, and in that kind of team construction, sadly, you can't scale it down. You know, if you, leave, if you let one of those guys go or they even move just to another project, you love this gaping hole in your system. And so with our pairing uh, and the trading of the knowledge and the switching of the pairs every five days, we perfectly position ourselves to scale down because no one is trapped in a tower of knowledge. No one has all the crown jewels in their head about a particular part of the system. Now, interestingly enough, for us, that leads to scaling up because, in fact, if we have four people working on a project and they've been working in a couple of pairs and we're switching them every week, so you kind of get three different pairings going on, and then suddenly the client comes in and says, hey, we need to go faster. I'm like, okay, we'll bring some more people in. We'll bring them in from this other project, and we can talk about, if you want, where would those people come from because you have to build those mechanisms in place too. But but just imagine they're there and we bring them in. We could bring four new people in and pair them with the four that have already been there. And suddenly the team's twice as big and they're getting nearly twice as much done as quickly right. as possible. And so we've just 
I remember Tom or uh, Peter Drucker's book on management that I read back in probably the late seventies. And he talked about the fact that management needs a flexible workforce. Well, flexibility gives its hand to scalability. If you have a flexible workforce, then you can start adding more people in because they're not like, well, that's not my job, right? And that's the first sign that you don't have a scalable system. So somebody says, I don't know how to do that. That's not my job. I can't (laughs) learn it. Very, very interesting. So I'm going to let you come back to your accountability and and so how you have resolved because you obviously did take a vacation where you left everything at home. And how did that feel? It was weird at first. There's no question. Uh, You know, it probably had a little bit of withdrawal. It would be like going off of caffeine or something. Um, And uh, But, you know, I just, like with everything, I had to plan for it. I had to set up because I just can't like leave everything. I'm the CEO of the company. Can't just say, well, I'll be back. You know, don't, don't bother me while I'm gone for a week, but I have people that I pair with here. And in this particular case, I paired with Anna uh, Flynn, who is our, is sort of my, you know, she's the one who keeps me organized in life. And I said, look, Anna, here's, here's what I need from you. You just read my email while I'm gone and say, boy, the things that I really need to give attention to but you know how to handle most of these things, and she did. And when I came back, I had 35 emails that I had to deal with. Well, let me tell you, that felt like a vacation to me. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that's back, a couple of hours. Right. And, you know, and, and, and I'm sure this is in the back of my mind. I thought, I never want to go away for a week and not check email. I'll come home to 1,500 emails, and I won't feel like going on vacation at all. Yes. And so, you know, most of them can be dealt with by other people, and she knows who needs to deal with those things. But she also uh, knew the things that I had to deal with. So when I came back, I had 35 messages. Well, that, I can tell you, felt like a vacation. Wow, that's great. So, um, you know, as as we get to the end of the book, and, and we just have a few minutes left, um, you talk about alignment. And, and I would imagine that this isn't even something at this juncture that you have to work on because this whole process lends itself to making sure everybody literally is on the same page and that you now have created not just a physical work environment, but you really have produced a culture. Yeah, there's, you know, I we probably probably we do still need to work on it. I, I I don't want to let ourselves off the hook because I think it's like if you get yourself in shape and you say, hey, I'm in shape now. I don't need to work at it anymore. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I've seen that yeah. movie. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I played I lost that. I played the leading Where's role the in that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and of course, when we add new people in, we can forget. Oh, we've got to take the work to make sure that everything's fine. Now, I think we have some systems and structures in place that make it kind of automatic, but the team still looks to me for leadership and vision. Uh, the world looks to Menlo uh, to make sure that that's consistent with, you know, the, the three data points I talk about in that chapter are what's the world's outside perception of your firm? How does that align with the inside reality of what it's like to work there? And how does that align with the vision and the leadership that's coming from the founders or the, mm. or the most senior leadership? And quite frankly, if you look at most companies, those three data points are nowhere near an alignment. Right. I, I once had somebody tell me, they said, well, we wouldn't want to share our inside reality with the outside world. I'm like, oh, okay, then you need to work on your inside reality. <laughs> right? 
uh, you know, why not? And they're like, well, it's awful. Okay, great, because you're presenting this, you know, you're one of the top 100 places to work on the planet kind of awards to the world, and yet on the inside you're telling me it sucks. That isn't right. Right. Because now you breed cynicism and demoralization yeah. and all that kind of stuff because people are like, oh, I don't believe anything he says. It's not like that at all. Hmm. Well, I love how you uh, begin the next chapter, which is actually dealing with those problems that get uh, exposed when you look at alignment. And, and your your quote here is, success means you get better problems, but there will always be problems. <laughs> and, and of course, you know that Weinstein, because anytime runs, you've got people. Yeah, that's from Ari Weinzweig, who runs Zingerman's here in town, and he's an amazing mentor to me. And uh, he's about my age, but he's been running Zingerman's for 20 years longer than I've been running Menlo, so I can learn so much from him. Mm. And I think we all think at a certain point in our lives, uh, we should get to a point where there are no problems. And quite frankly, I think we do, and that's the day we die. Uh, yes. But up until that point, we're going to be dealing with problems constantly. Uh, and, you know, hopefully they're better and better problems. But quite frankly, uh, you know, when anybody ever says to a leader, oh, don't worry, if you have that problem, that'll be a good problem to have, right? <laughs> the fact of the matter is a good problem to have is a good problem to have for about five minutes, and then five minutes later it just feels like a regular problem. Right. So as we uh, wrap up our hour, and it's gone by so fast, um, the the conclusion of the book talks about stepping into joy, and I love visualizing that. So talk to me about that. You know, when I encourage people now at conferences and so on, they, they're like, where would we start? And uh, you know, I say, look, you know, you're going to go back. You're going to read a book like this. You're going to hear me speak at a conference. You are going to um, be excited about something. And, and you go back into the office and you say to somebody, hey, I've got this great idea. And they look at you and go, well, that won't work here. Uh, we can't. <laughs> well, that's not us. And I encourage people now to simply say, look, look them in the eyes, shrug your shoulders, say, yeah, I know, but let's run the experiment. Let's see what happens. And the fact of the matter is that this journey to joy that I talk about is an arduous journey. You need others to join you. You can't yes. do it alone. There will be storms and setbacks. You, you will have disappointments. Uh, you need to have some encouragers. I would suggest anybody who's contemplating major change within their organization, I, I tell them, seek the highest possible ground you can, not for, not for explicit partnership, but for heat shield partnership. Right. Words, you need some executive who can keep you safe while you're going through this dramatic change or you'll be defeated. I, yes. I, there were many yes. times where I felt like, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. This is hard. Right. And, you know, back in my old corporate life, I had a boss, Bob Nero, who just was wonderful. And every time I slowed down, every time I doubted myself, he put his hand on my shoulder and whispered in my ear and he said, Rich, you're doing the right thing. Keep going. You'll be mm -hmm. okay. And I really, really needed that from time to time. Well, Richard, uh, I think our time is up. I want to be respectful of your schedule because uh, you said that you needed to be off by one. Uh, again, the book that we have been talking about is Joy Incorporated, How We Built a Workplace People Love. Uh, the author is Richard Sheridan. Richard, can you tell folks how to learn more about Menlo? Well, we have a website, 
www.menloinnovations.com. Uh, and the, we have all kinds of free uh, uh, information there that you can download off of our website. Obviously, the book exists. But I can tell you what a lot of people decide to do is probably what you've decided to do now, yeah. and that is come and visit. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and I am so excited because I don't have to retool anything. I get to build this from scratch. And uh, I encourage uh, uh folks who are in early stage businesses to take the time to do it right uh, because the results of having uh, having this place of joy. I mean, I just, I can't imagine anything that is going to be better than, than modeling my new business after this. So Richard, thank you so, so much uh, for giving us some of your time. Uh, I'll have to look at the weather and see when things get a little bit warmer in Michigan <laughs> since I am uh, in palm tree laden Tampa, Florida. <laughs> well, our I, saying in Michigan is, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, and it's like there you change. go, there you go. I do remember I, I came to a course in Ann Arbor years ago, a management course, and uh, but it probably was not in in winter. Of course, today is the first day of spring. So uh, exactly. on that note, I uh, wish you a wonderful weekend. I definitely will be in touch, and uh, we will figure out when uh, when I can make a make a trek to Ann Arbor. Well, this was fun. Thank you so much for it. Your, was. Uh, it was great fun. For those who'd like to know a little bit more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, it's www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We also have a private Facebook group and a public Facebook page. So thanks for joining us, and see you next week. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.